She's a rare bride-to-be, my son, quiet and obedient. No one but her mother has ever kissed her mouth. She'll never leave home without asking your permission, unless it's to her grave. She'll give birth only to boys, a maid by day, a slave girl by night. She'll be a ring on your finger, which you can turn around as you wish and take off when you wish. And if you rub it, it will say, At your service, your slave is at your command. Abdul listened, hardly able to believe that this was really happening to him here in the heart of the Trocadero district in Paris six years before the year 2000. But here was a mysterious lady in her fifties, sitting in front of him with her plump face and her black scarf, which she threw back, revealing locks of hair dyed red with henna. The old women of his family in Beirut had used henna when he was a child. She had pleasant dimples and was adept at the art of discarding formality right from the first meeting, as was customary in Lebanon, his motherland. What made this matchmaker offer her services today in particular when I had finally decided to ask Nadine this very evening to marry me? The mysterious lady continued, Abdurazak, my son, this bride worships God in heaven and you on earth. You can marry a second, a third, a fourth wife in addition to her, and she will live happily with her co-wives. She'll even go out herself and ask the hand of a second bride for you if she can bear you no children. But it is important that your wedding night, you behead a cat on the threshold of your home in front of her, so she will see and understand that her fate will be that of the cats, should she disobey you. So that was Marshalink Squaley reading for you an excerpt of Rada Saman's story, Beheading the Cat, which is in the forthcoming issue of Arab Lit Quarterly. Thanks for reading that, Marcia. <laughs> yes. Well, I always, I always thought I might be a matchmaker if I couldn't match people with books. So. <laughs> and 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 what a and what a, and what a pitch that this matchmaker has. Exactly. Um, what a lovely girl she would be. Um, I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is episode 56 of the Bullock Podcast. And today we'll be talking about the, what is also the theme of the upcoming issue of Arabic Quarterly, which is cats in Arabic literature. Um, and uh, by the time this episode comes out, the issue will be available. And we're going to talk a bit about how you've put this together, Marsha. And um, you've been... You've been publishing Arabic Quarterly for a couple of years now, right? It's so the sort of flies, but <laughs> the first issue came out in fall 2018, and it's supposed to be quarterly. But I think in 2019 we only had three quarters. Somehow, um, this year 2020 we will have four quarters. Yeah, well, it's worth. I mean, it's worth also mentioning that this is a like very independent uh, project. That you completely uh, self-finance through subscriptions and and sales and and do your your own distribution and, and pour an enormous amount of of work into you and your brilliant designer. Right. Yes. This is very much a um, hundreds of hours of Hassan and I uh, um, on the phone together working it out. Um, yeah. No. In the last months, I've been surprised to get regular questions about who is your board of directors? Who's financing this? What is your mission statement? <laughs> uh, nobody's financing it where there's no secret CIA money coming in or any secret 
any money at all. But yes. Well, hopefully that's something that can be you know remedied <laughs> at some point. I mean, um, like, I mean, whatever we've talked about this before, but the sort of difficulties of doing independent cultural projects, whether it's this podcast or the magazine or your website and maintaining that independence and also though finding ways to make them like long-term viable and either through certain forms of institutional funding or through, you know, the support of, of readers and listeners. That's always like a really complicated balance. Yeah, no, I, I certainly have not figured it out in any way, shape or form, but, um, in order to make it sustainable, something different needs to happen. Yeah. I think there's a great, um, I, I think there's a great interest in it, which is fantastic. Uh, but still somehow there's some different calculus that needs to happen to make it financially workable. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the case, like across publishing and yeah, especially at this moment, and um, right, right. Yeah, no, it was it was a hard time to go to people and say, "Would you like to pay for an advertisement in the magazine?" Right, right. Although the ma- so the magazine itself is like absolutely worth getting and 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 very beautiful. And every time, anytime I've managed to get my hands on a hard copy, which is not always easy because it's hard to get it distributed uh across the the region right like you can yeah order it is it. very difficult it is easy to get in the u.s uh europe the uk um uh but in in terms of yeah i'm working on getting it i had it in bookshops in beirut obviously i those copies were lost um it's oh. hard to get it's hard to get to cairo Especially now, because I had been relying on the network of people flying back and forth, which is quite curtailed um, in this recent period. So, yeah, it's, um, I mean, book distribution in general throughout this region is is a complicated thing. Yeah. But so, and you always feature, I mean, it's... um usually all new or original translations, right? Or sometimes excerpts of works that have been translated in the past, but that fit into the theme of the issue. This is the, actually, I think this one, Beheading the Cat, is the only previously published translation that I think that we've run. Um, This appeared in a collection of Reda Saman's work from University of Arkansas Press that I think is out of print and probably didn't get much circulation. Came out like 15 years ago. Um, and Leila Al-Amr wanted to write an essay about this story. And so I thought, well, we really should surely get the story as well. I mean, I liked it. It's a little bit of a mess, which is kind of the feeling I have about a lot of Ghada Salman's work, <laughs> is that it doesn't always... Well, I don't, I don't know, um, that there's like elements that don't always kind of like all sort of like fit together very smoothly, but that there's a kind of force to it that is quite compelling. Right. I mean, she's obviously, I, I sort of, um, uh, uh, I guess you could say a feminist writer. I mean, like I think gender and, 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 and women's place in society has always been a theme in her work. And she's been writing since the 60s, I think, no? Yes, yes. 
And she's originally Syrian, but then uh, lived for, I mean, in Beirut and was part of the like literary scene there for, for many years. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure if she's still publishing recently, but she's still around. Yeah. And and this story is kind of, I mean, so what I, it has multiple elements. Like there's this emigre Lebanese man in Paris who is, you know, uh, hesitating to propose to his like, to, to a fellow emigre Lebanese woman who is so liberated that he finds her intimidating, basically. Um, and then he's like, but I so my favorite part of the story is the way he is visited by this like ghost matchmaker, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, this matchmaker who is literally a ghost from the past, just like the sort of her attitudes are also um, about marriage are also kind of like, you know, from the past. Um, I thought that was like really neat, uh, neat part of the story. Um yeah, because I think he wants to marry Nadine, but he he thinks he shouldn't want to marry Nadine. He should want this other thing that this ghost from the past is proposing. Or he's yeah, I mean, definitely there's something about it that that he finds sort of comforting, you know, to be told, you know, you know, to have this like completely over the top. I also found it funny, like the descriptions of this ideal bride just get, <laughs> right. like, are so are so <laughs> over the top. You know, she's fourteen and she'll never speak, and she won't even refer to a banana or an eggplant without like saying "excuse me" because I don't intend to have any sexual innuendo, and she'll walk behind you and she mm-hmm. won't care about. Pot. It just goes on and on and on. It's so over the top, right? Right, right. But right. He's, Something about it, actually, you know, this over the topness of like, you'll be the center of her universe. He enjoys. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, relationships are difficult and messy. And like, how do you know who you're supposed to marry in this sort of contemporary world where you're just trying to figure out if you'll be the right match with them? This is very clear cut. How are they going to relate to each other? Right. Right. Yeah. No, there'll be no there'll be no. uh no tensions no questions in this marriage no uh uh-uh. and and then this 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 um i don't I, I and and i think it's actually not a traditional thing it's something that some men made up this you'll kill behead a cat on the threshold of your home on your wedding night to sort of show your wife who's who's what's boss happen to well, her. so yeah. so layla layla's essay, layla writes an essay about this um also for the magazine, and she found it in, um, it. there's a Pakistani version of the saying, there's a Bengali version of it, and there's a Persian version of it. But no, it's not sort of an, it's not an Arabic saying, it's not a, it's not an indigenous Lebanese saying. Um, but, but it does appear, you know, uh, that either there's a king who who must behead, you know, he's being shown how to be a strong leader, just like a man must behead a cat in front of his wife to show who's boss. So apparently this, this really is, I'm not sure if anyone actually literally, I hope not beheaded a cat to show their wife who's boss, but, but it's it's a metaphor. (laughs) And the image is clear. It's like instantly actually kind of clear. Right. Yes. Yes. um, Yes. You're, you're, a woman is vulnerable in the same way that a cat is vulnerable and marginalized. And I think that appears in other stories and uh, in this issue that, that a cat can 
can represent a sort of marginality, a sort of not being able to stand up for yourself uh, th that is also a place that women sometimes, some women inhabit in society. And also maybe that cats, I mean, tend to be feminized as a, as an animal. Right. Yes, like definitely. They're, they're, they're more, and this idea of them kind of being elusive or there's right. something that needs to be kind of pinned down about a cat. I don't right. know. Right. Yeah. You can't, um, you can't quite make them do what you, it, it's, you know, it's not a dog. You can't say sit and expect a cat to sit. There's something right, there's ungovernable, ungovernable about a cat that is, that can be in in a meta you know a troubling element in a story in a metaphor um did you have cats growing up i didn't i did not so i <laughs> there's some ridiculous family story that uh, my mother says is not true that a cat leapt into my my great great grandfather loved no, my great-grandfather loved cats and cats were the center of his universe. And then apparently my grandmother, this was her father-in-law, didn't get on with him anyway. Uh, and a, a, supposedly a cat leapt into my Aunt Leslie's crib when she was a baby and started mauling her and nearly killed her. I, I don't I don't think this actually happened. Um <laughs> But, there are stories <laughs> like that too, of course, and the, the sort of black cats and the cats as like, um, uh, you know, sitting on people's chests at night and sucking out their breath. And I don't know if that's more of a Western Victorian uh, version of cats. Yeah. The, so the, the thing that's present in the region, right, right? In the region, I found I found a lot of Jinni stories, right? That like right. cats can be can be transformed other beings uh but not that cats it seems pretty rare that cats are are associated with evil people can you know of course they appear as annoying in some stories um if there are a lot of street cats um and they appear as vulnerable and they appear as feminized and they appear as mysterious and, and spirits but not not in the in this same evil riding on the back of a broomstick with a witch way in which they appear in in Western stories, at least not that I ran across. Well, because also you kind of famously have the 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 very positive things that the Prophet Muhammad said about right. Cats. So right. so culturally, they're not an animal that's viewed that negatively, right? Like right. There's these prophetic sayings, and you know where you know he does all these kind things towards cats and says nice things about cats and likes to visit people with cats. So um that right. probably not only plays... is, right. Not only is there that extremely famous story of a cat sitting on his robe and rather than and the cat falls asleep and rather than disturb the cat, he cuts off part of his robe. There are all sorts of other hadith about yes, cats being clean and you can drink out of the same you can do your ablutions out of a, the same water that a cat was drinking out of and uh, a woman went to hell because she tied up a cat and a man went to heaven and had all of his sins forgiven, not because of any other thing he did in life, but because he was once kind to a small cat. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of stories about telling us to be 
good to cats. Yeah. And I mean, and, and then also if you think about like, uh, in, in a country like Egypt, I mean, the, the figure of the cat, of course, there's like the very famous, uh, sort of pharaonic depictions of cats as, as, as sacred animals and, uh, as, 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 as one of the animals that like represents, you know, divinities and, and, uh, and then you have that lovely essay in this issue actually, where it looks at, uh, the depictions of cats in more modern Egyptian art and, right. and just shows a lot of different ways in which they've featured in Egyptian painting, which I loved. Yeah, yeah, by uh, Karim, who's both an, a writer and an art collector, or art something. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, yeah, so there, there's a funny, like, conjunction of Egyptian attitudes towards cats, which have long been extremely positive, and then Arab attitudes towards cats, which were also very positive. Um, so there is um, a, a somewhat troubling magic spell that ends the issue uh, <laughs> in our recipes slot, where if you want to attract, say, a loved one, or if you want to prevent a war, you might need to cook a cat in order to do it. But generally, <laughs> generally, everything else. Sorry, is very what's kind. it? What's it? For, what? What's it for again? It's to start these a are war like, and attract well, the loved no, one. Uh, these are different spells in which one needs a cat as an element of the magic spell. And there, as Emily Seelove writes in her introduction, this, the spells are always a little bit vague because they're not, you, they're meant to be esoteric. And obviously you shouldn't really try to torture a cat in order to attract your beloved or to stop a war or really, no, torturing a cat's not going to help. Um, but yeah, there's some magic spells at the end that involve cats that that do overlap sort of medieval European ways of of seeing cats and that oh. was the that was really the only um so i think you know there there must have been some sort of traffic in these in these occult ideas that moved between um between countries but generally it's sort of overwhelmingly cats are vulnerable cats are yeah cats are a beloved cats are feminized cats you really should they they may metamorphize they may be from a different world you should probably be kind to them hmm. and and the idea to to make this the focus of this issue how did that come about i think generally the okay, there are so there are a couple different reasons so there's generally the ethos of the magazine i think is to try and be fun uh there's a lot of arabic literature and translation that's about reflecting the headlines in some way uh, explaining who they are breaking taboos this sort of thing and um i uh, i want this magazine to be something a, a space that's just enjoyable to read in a the literature. But uh, sort of cats offer so many different ways of looking at humans and our relationship to our world. Um, uh, how, how we see cats, I think, and how cats appear in, in literature reflects a lot 
over time about who human beings are. Also, Hassan has a very beloved cat. <laughs> Hassan is definitely 100% cat person, and he really gets to call a lot of the shots with the magazine. Well, and also, I think a lot, all of your themes have been something like very um, simple, right? Like mm. it's, I mean, simple in the sense of it's not um, like it's a it can, it's it's a theme that can that can be so much can be put into it and it can go in so many directions, right? right. So I don't want it to be or the eye, right, or, right? It leaves a lot of space. It's a very it's a very like simple in the sense that it's a, like a simple frame and you can put a lot of things into it. Right. This I wouldn't want to determine one of the most specific ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, I think it's specific in the sense of there needs to be a cat <laughs> in your story in some way. Um, but I wouldn't want to determine your attitude towards the cat or um, what the cat represents or anything like that. And still, like, for me, one of the things that's really fun about reading every issue is to see how, like, where a theme like that can go. And I'm always, like, surprised um, by, you know, how how many connections can be made. Um, I also, I, I, I thought the article that you have about a book that was written by the Lebanese writer Emily Nasrallah Mm, it's a right. it's a book for young adults and children, right? Yes. Um, and it's it's translated as what happened to Zico, and uh, I think the Arabic title is slightly different. Yeah, it's 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 Diary of a Cat. You may have um, and and it's based on her own. That's a it's based. It's a lovely story how it's based on her her own daughter's pet cat who who died in the bombing of their right home. in 1982. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, decades later, she finally published a, a a book about this cat that's become, you know, a sort of classic and translated into all these languages and um, is a great gift to her own daughter. And then also uh, sounds like a really lovely way to to have looked at the conflict through the eyes of children, pets, you know, s smaller, more vulnerable Features who aren't playing an active role in this and are just having to process it. Yeah, what I really liked was that <laughs> that at first Mona didn't want she she wrote it right after you know soon after Zico the cat had disappeared and that Mo she shared it with Mona and Mona was like no don't publish this mom um, and then so then she did you know an, an, another decade or decade and a half later publish it and send it to Mona while she was at university abroad. So, you know, the finding out the, the story behind this, this novel that I've, you know, that's always seemed to have been around. Yeah. I didn't know it. I found the story very, very moving. Um, Cause you identify with the backstory, like every parent has to basically come up with a story right. when their child loses a pet and then this was a particular, I mean, this is a completely other register of loss because it was their house was completely destroyed at the same time. There's a, you know, war going on. And, um, but 
you know, the idea of trying to, of imagining either sort of something alternative having happened to this beloved pet or finding a way to tell their story so that it's like a consolation for your child. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's a very lovely uh, insight into how the book came about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I, one of the things I like about the opportunity this the magazine space provides is that we can look at literature from so many different periods. So this was written in the 1980s, and then we also have things about how uh, written about cats from the 13th century and the 15th century, um, uh, and uh, to you know a piece that was written about cats. Uh, six weeks ago for this magazine. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about those older texts because I think they're really interesting. Um, so, yeah, t t let's let's talk a bit more about like how what those are these like medieval texts about cats. Right. So we have several of them in this issue actually. Um, one of them is a one by Jobari from the 13th century that was submitted for the the crime issue. But it it gives you and I'll just read a bit in case you ever want to go into housebreaking. This is some really important advice. Among their tricks is that they take a tomcat and a chunky piece of meat then wander the streets. Whenever one of them finds an open door, he throws the chunk of meat and throws the tomcat after it. The cat would then seize the piece of meat and the burglar would yell at it, the cat running through the door with the burglar at its heels. If he chances on someone inside, he says, catch this tomcat and get my piece of meat away from it. And if he doesn't find anyone within, he sneakily takes whatever he is able to carry, picks it up and gets out. So take heed. So maybe that's not meant to be advice for the criminal so much as the homeowner. But so this is from what's the larger text? This is, this is right. This is um, this is generally about criminals. So Joe Bowdy is somewhat like obsessed with um, uh, writing stories about crime and criminality. Um, well, aren't we all? I mean, come on, <laughs> right, right. So we did, we did have an excerpt from him in the in the crime issue as well. But this is specifically how to make how people commit crimes with cats. Um, so I, you, you know, I just I, I love all the different, um, not just interested in the different ways in which people look at cats over time, but also you know the different modes of writing. So. In Merits of the House Cat by Osuyuti, it's it's much more of a you know an encyclopedia of everything, a winnowed down encyclopedia of everything we knew about cats in the time in the 15th century from these different sources, which David Larson has translated um, for the issue. But and which includes this mm -hmm. kind of incredible list of all the names. All the ways to say cat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It it made me feel the impoverishment of cat and feline and I tomcat. I struggled to think of anything else. Um, hopefully in Old English, there's some different fun ways to say cat that I don't know about. Um but and and so but that that so the Suyuti belongs a little bit to this medieval genre of kind of these books that tried to 
collect sort of all available knowledge on yes. either yeah. a particular topic or some of them seem to have been just all available knowledge in the world at this time, right? They were sort of, they had these encyclopedic ambitions and 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 they're sort of charmingly um, meandering at times, right? Like right. they're not, I mean, there are principles of organization to them, but one of the things that makes them kind of fun to read is, I mean, besides the fact that they give you sort of the view of the world at this particular time, but is is the way that they're organized also sometimes reflects the like interests of the of the person writing them or has this kind of idiosyncratic quality to it. Right. I think to me what was so I think Asuti himself was trying to uh, be more organized than people in the past when they'd written about animals. But one of the crazy things to me is that he'll it seems like he's working towards a point like this is what cats are like. This is what we know about cats. And then he'll include a source that totally undermines everything that he was saying. Um, and it's just, it's like broad in that sense that I, I think, I'm not sure I ever slash rarely find in contemporary writing that he, he's just like including all the things about, it's here is one hadith that said Muhammad felt this way about cats. So here's another hadith. It says he felt some totally different way about cats. And it, yep, they both exist. And he doesn't like insert himself to say, this one is real, this one's not real. It's just, you know, so-and-so said so-and-so said. Right. Well, it's this kind of, I think what's fascinating about these books is that they they have a different kind of logic to or approach to knowledge than the one that that, you know, has been embraced since and that we're familiar with from from sort of more modern scientific, you know sources of knowledge in the sense that it was comprehensiveness like you didn't leave anything out and that is exactly what gives us this kind of character of um you know sometimes things being contradictory uh and and sometimes inclusions being sort of unexpected i was trying to remember it's um it's it's Elias Mahana who translated one of these books, and the translation is just a. Uh, it, obviously, it's not the whole thing. It's Al Nuwairi's. Uh, it's called "The World in a Book," I think, right. the English yes. edition, and it's mm. like excerpts from it. But this was one of those ones that tried to sort of cover everything, everything that was known, right? Um, and it's really kind of it's really fun to read. Uh, and then I guess Asuyuti did some did a book that was specifically about animals, and then had a section that was specifically about cats. Yeah, yeah. I, I, apparently, a section that could you know it could stand on its own that could be removed from the and copied separately from the from the overall piece. Yeah, and it so it includes what was scientific knowledge about cats at the time. What were some clever poems about cats? What what were the hadith? What did Muhammad say about cats? Um, what did what did we know about what Aisha thought about cats? So, yeah, it's a really broad look at from this time. What was the information out there about kitty cats? Mm. Yeah, and it's overall again. I mean, it's a very um, it's it 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 presents an overall sort of 
cultural view of the animal as like quite beloved. I mean, there's a poem from like a heartbroken cat yeah. owner yeah, about his. I love that one. <laughs> his, you know, because several of the stories do involve people's cats, like misbehaving in the neighborhood and especially you can imagine back at the time when everyone was raising pigeons and chickens and other animals around you know the cats having a domestic cat might be great for you and not great for your neighbors right um, who might and, own fowl of some sort right and so there's this just like i mean yeah i i guess it's it's not I mean, it's just the the contrast of this poem, the, the tone is like exactly, it's the tone of, you know, just completely serious mourning uh, for this for this cat who has finally um, uh, sort of reaped the consequences of his uh, hunting of the neighbor's pigeons yeah. and has finally been killed by the neighbors. Sadly. Uh, yeah. It was a uh, very beloved seem- cat. Yeah, it seems so. Um, so, so. So there's that. Then, of course, there's also the anecdote about the cat, like not being of very much value when you go to sell it in the market. So there, there's a little bit of everything. Right. But there, and then there's also uh, several hadith that say you're not allowed to sell cats at all because you can neither eat the cat nor can you eat the the money that you earn from selling a cat that it's mm-hmm. uh you might you may not buy and sell cats. They're they're above that sort of thing. Um, which is so strange. Which I think has not been taken up widely. <laughs> I think people do buy and sell cats, but Yeah, well. Um But I like the idea, there's... actually. Yeah, no, me too. I mean having generally speaking right isn't that the direction we're all going is 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 to try and not buy pets but always adopt them mm, just, yes right so um, this is very um forward thinking right <laughs> it is it's extremely progressive mm, exactly yeah um what else what else should we mention that's in that's in the issue i mean obviously so then there's to... as i think more modern poems the cat tends more often to be a stand stand in for some sort of erotic object or some kind of relationship um some uh, a cat in heat a cat um a cat having desire um a cat's desire being sort of you know ungovernable in in some way uh so the cats exist in in different <laughs> And not to sort of terribly oversimplify, but in the, in the men's poems that I read, cats, it, you know, it tended to be more of a focus on the eroticism of the cat, of, of being able to talk about erotic desire through the cat. Whereas in the women's poems that I read for the issue, um, it was more of a relationship oriented thing. Although there was also um, the sensory, um, there was also desire involved, but also there was um, a relationship between the person and the cat. Um, So for instance, we have Russia Umran, which um, um, the French translator sent me many 
photographs of Russia, who's a Syrian poet who lives currently in Egypt, of her with her cat in her apartment. Um, her cat is clearly a central part of her life and her relationships. And uh, and her cat is also a central part, I think, of her her poetry, her relationship poetry, her kind of particularly when the narrator is like an a middle-aged woman it's you know a middle-aged woman who who feels desire and often this is intertwined with the cat so here's here's mm. a poem called here's a poem called claws uh translated to english by phoebe bay carter if i were a cat i would wash my skin with my tongue like this your scent passing from my skin to my mouth so I'd think I'd devoured you, nothing remaining of you for anyone else to see until I was satisfied, and I'd stretch out on the ground, content, that no one else but me would see you, that no one else but me would smell your scent, and no one else would hear your delicate bones cracking but me. Who said love is always docile, and that it must never be a beast, a beast with its senses sharpened, like the claws of an angry cat? So there's like a way in which the cat represents all kinds of human desire and sensuality, um, but in a not quite human way. Yeah. Well, and you put out a, a sort of call for authors to share pictures of themselves with their cats and got a huge response, right? I mean... So right. you got a lot of sort of in, sort of people, writers volunteering or wanting to share something or some image of their about their relationship with their cats. Right. So there's a gallery, a photo gallery at the center of the issue, and it is both historic photos of authors with cats. I think it started because I saw this. Um, uh, I saw this issue, the, this um, photograph online of Tawfiq al-Hakim sitting in this ridiculous pose with a cat, a kitten on each shoulder. It's an amazing picture. <laughs> right. Um, and so I wondered, oh, what other, come on, what other photos are the historic? At first, I was just looking for historic photos of authors with their cats. And there are some of those. Um, but then I, I broadened it to... Uh, okay, well, just authors, come on, authors and their cats. And so there are all sorts of um, photos also of, of contemporary. And we have, for instance, uh, Drish Raibi's um, uh, former partner sent in, um, former wife rather, sent in a, a photo of him in the early 80s with his cat. Um, and there's also... I know some people, This there was a great debate about this on social media. Some people will be very sad. I am including the photo of Nagim Mahfouz with a tiny dog. I'm sorry. It's, it's a very, great. very, very tiny dog. He's going he's gonna to be fine with these cats. They're not going to mind him. It's, it's, it's fine for contrast or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> there was somebody who made me promise if we do a dog issue, there has to be one picture of a cat in it. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. I, I solemnly swear. Oh, so, you know, I did have a cat growing up 
and um, it was a it was a cat that I rescued from in the rain in Rome. Aww. It was a perfect kind of like cinematic beginning to our to our relationship. It was like a little black kitten who was crying on the doorstep of the building next to ours in the rain, and I was little. I was like eleven or something, and I found her. So I was also very proud of having rescued her, mm. and very proprietary. And uh, we used to let her out all day and then you'd call her and she'd come home to the apartment at night. So my job was to like go out in the courtyard and call her and she'd just come running from somewhere in the street. Uh, and but then and then she died. She died as 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 cats who aren't 100 percent house cats often do. Um, and I'm not sure it happened over the summer. So I wasn't there. I'm not sure if it was a car or if it was a dog, I think my dad was very, um, you know, fuzzy about what happened for, for quite a while. So the details didn't stay with me either. Um, we had her for many years and then I became allergic to cats. So now completely not, can't be part of our life mm. anymore. I, yeah, I, I, guess I, I probably, <laughs> I, I was allergic as a kid, but I, um, I had, uh, shots and so then i became much less allergic but then over time it's really it's really returned but i i also the first when i was living in a dorm room i i found a kitten and i don't think i knew very much at all about what was necessary to to raise a cat so i found this kitten that must have been abandoned or its mother died i don't know outside the dorm room and i took it in to raise it and I love this little kitten, but it it didn't it didn't last more than a few weeks. Oh, those I've had I've had a few of too. Mm. Um, who doesn't, right? You every once in a while, and there's so many little kittens out there, right? Right. And every once in a while, you pick unless you're the kind of person who picks them all up. There are people like that who rescue <laughs> right. every every little kitten they come across. I think most people, it's just once in a blue moon for some reason you you decide to help one or the other. Um, and, uh, it's, it's usually not ended well. I have to be honest. Uh, sometimes they're, I think have been abandoned for a reason by their moms or they're sick already or. Right. Yeah. This kitten, um, was, kitten was possibly sick already. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I did read a few <laughs> scientific articles in the, in the process of thinking through the magazine about, uh, the early history of of cats and the process of what we call domestication of cats, but cats not are not domesticated in the same sense that, uh, say, you know, cattle or dogs are domesticated, where there was sort of a clear use for them. But rather, cats, I think, found a use for living near humans, and never really. Proved. I mean, you know, of course, people say, oh, I, I need a cat to keep mice at bay or people do suggest reasons to have cats, but they're not sort of work animals in the same sense that other animals who we say are domesticated are domesticated, but rather cats found it quite useful to live among humans and to develop relationships with humans. Um, right. And it was yeah. much much more cat driven, I think, than human driven. Than human driven, huh? I also wonder. I was thinking, sort of looking at the gallery of of writers with their cats. I was I was think I was wondering if 
you know, the cat is a very well suited pet to a writer because it doesn't make a lot of demands mm. on you, right? Like it doesn't require that you do any particular activities. You don't have to walk a cat, you know. It it it's quite independent. You can sort of have it's and 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 for writers who are generally what you know solitary, uh, and I think uh, very jealous of their time. You'd have to be right, right, if you're, right, if that's what you're doing. But who also, you know, because you're solitary, it's maybe nice to have certain kinds of interests and activities that like intertwine with your writing, you know, and having that kind of pet who just passes by now and then. Uh, it seems like a good fit. Yeah, I, I, some of the some of the photos were extremely charming. Of like, for instance, um, I've read a lot of work by Hassan Zaktan, um, Palestinian poet and novelist, or cross genreist, or whatever you want to say about his prose writing. And uh, <laughs> to see him sitting at this table. Um, which I don't know if it's too like Snoopy and weird and stalkery, but he, you know, he gave permission for these photos. But, you know, to see the different objects that are on the table, not just his two cats curled up next to his laptop, but what the, the kitty brush that's there and and all these different things that he has around, uh, you know, stacks of stacks of chaotic books, which I always love to see. Right. And cats like to sort of lie across a book or a keyboard mm. or a desk. They're 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 happy they can be they're happy to be like right there next to you as you work, sometimes sort of demanding your attention. Right. I did I have seen complaints on social media from cat owners since lockdown has begun that <laughs> that their cat is now demanding that they pay much more attention to them than you know, people who know, used to, I think, go into an office and now are trying to do their job at a desk and a cat at being, home, yeah, being quite demanding of their time. Um, but I think uh, that's were... so interesting. I think it's another way in which the cat is very much sort of the driver of the relationship. <laughs> right, right. No, I think that's true. That it was a, it's been a mutual, it's been a mutual domestication, and they're also like it's, it strikes the cat strikes me as like a very urban animal right like in that way too it's not a typical domestic animal like most of which are right rural not particularly right. urban. and cats live both with people and without people um, right yeah no so one of the final essays in the magazine is about the cats of al-quds or jerusalem and you know there are so many cats there that inhabit this in-between space they're not house cats they're not really feral either. They are city cats. They're, they're, they are acclimated to people. They maybe belong to people as your, your cat did. They belong to people sometimes sort of. Um, and, and then, you know, what, what are the extreme pressures on cats who live in East Jerusalem? And of course, you know, metaphorically and how do they relate to the pressures on the humans hmm. who live in that environment as well yeah there's a lot of i mean there is a there's a whole relationship that takes place between people and cats in the street 
right? Right. That's right. not the people who own the cat. I mean, whatever. And of course, the the sort of cliche of this is the cat lady, the 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 lady who has you know fifty cats in her apartment, but also maybe out on the street. And you know, I know a couple real life cat, you know, ladies who drive around with bags full of cat food in the trunk of their car, like feeding packs of cats at strategic locations in cities in in Rabat. I know. Right. Uh, Right. Most of them I know in Rabat are men, but yes. No, I think the fact that it's the cat lady is, is, is not an accurate, not particularly (laughs) accurate. That's just the, you know, that's just the expression. I, I, I think it can, it can very much be both men and women who, who, who who do this these kinds of things and and but that whole you know uh when you also go to certain places and they're like covered in cats you know like certain houses certain courtyards in in Rabat there's that there's that at the Shilla there's that that right. shrine yes uh, right and because people feed cats there I don't know it's it's just a place that's like covered in cats hmm. right um, so, so there's these kind of places in the city that are like cat hangouts. Right. There is one, uh, a block behind Paul as well. There is an enormous amount of food that's put out every day. And so if you're there at that moment, it's swarming with cats. <laughs> yeah. So I think the other thing that they sort of evoke a lot is like, is that, is that the way that they move through cities is very, is kind of, is kind of something that people relate to and are jealous of this kind of roaming and yes. adventuring and yes. seeing the city. And, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of projection there. Yeah, no. That, okay. So that it makes, uh, I, so the first time that I read this Leila Balbeki story, um, there's a, there's a girl in relationship to a much older man who's married. And simultaneous to that, there, there are these cats that are that move between um, being house cats and being cats in a, a garden or park outdoors, living their own lives. And there's a there's a kitten that's that the man grabs at some point and throws in his car and says he's gonna have his kid play with it. And the in the and, 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 you know, I, you know, I, in many ways I read this cat as, you know, not being able to speak up for itself and not having agency and nobody listening to it. And it can't go to the government and complain about this man. It, it doesn't have any control over its and it, life. And, and even if it did, it would get arrested itself. Right. 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 Um, and then, uh, there's a wonderful ending, but, uh, but then on the other hand, when the cat d- does manage to get free of this, you know, when cats in the story in general manage to get free of of people, they do like live their own lives in a park and seem to, at least in the story, really enjoy that. So there is that also that other side of the cat not having to humans maybe, you know, have to be domestic in some way, but cats can also live this other life. Right. Yeah. No. I mean that's a. Uh very evocative figure as 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 you make very clear in this in this uh collection in this very big issue you're telling me that you like are having yeah it's expanded and expanded <laughs> and you can't and i should say that we're ah. talking i should say that we're talking as you're finishing the, the edits right the, right we're still in page proof 
we still need to format the table of contents because <laughs> we we record a little bit ahead of of when, of when we when we release so um yeah and so i know you've been right hassan you- and i just pulled an all-nighter hopefully we will oh. not not pull another one tonight um yeah <laughs> you know some issues are easier than others this one i did let get out of control in terms of length <laughs> I well, I'm, I'm not as firm as I should be about anything. Well, I can understand how it's hard to turn things down. I mean, so I've had the pleasure of seeing the um drafts of it and not not all of it and and not the like, absolute final version. So it looks beautiful as always. Um and I'm looking forward to seeing the rest um in my own final copy and maybe we should let we should let you get back <laughs> I hope this has been like a good break for you <laughs> and, absolutely uh, it's been a fan I, I needed it I needed to breathe a little bit not talk about uh you know whatever the extra space on page 42 um and we should encourage everyone really by the time uh, this episode comes out uh this issue of Arab Lit Quarterly will be available um, online or, or depending on where you are, you can order a print copy uh, and uh, you should really check it out or subscribe to the magazine um, just as uh, it'd be great if you subscribe to the podcast uh, and, sh- <laughs> yes, and, 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 and share the usual reminder, you know, so please subscribe, please share, follow us on Twitter. It's at Bulak Books. Uh, and if you want to uh, comments, questions, uh, share those with us. It's uh, hashtag block books. Um, and uh, I guess we'll let we'll let you go back. We'll let you go back to work. <laughs> right, Marcia. right. I would just I would just emphasize that it really is like an anthology, um, as much as it is a magazine. So there is a a wide range of of works around this you know, sort of a book length range of works Absolutely. Around, around the topic of Katniss. Around, in di- I mean, discussing like different mediums and discussing different eras and discussing different genres and, and uh, regions. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a kind of, it's t- every time you put these things together, they're pretty, t- they're kind of timeless. Like that's the thing. Right. I think right. You're, you're right to say that is that it's not, it's not really a magazine in the sense that it's a reference that you can, you know, you, you, you can and will look at, you know, years from now, um, especially that so much, I mean, all, almost all the translations are, are original and new. Right. Right. Although hopefully they'll reappear elsewhere. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Um, well, thank you for taking me out of page proofing process for a little while. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. And uh, it's great to talk to you. And um, we'll be back uh, in a couple weeks. Yes. See you then. Okay. Bye-bye.